Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Good morning, peeps, and welcome to Woke AF Daily with me, your girl, Danielle Moody, recording not so live from my Brooklyn solarium. Folks, as many of you know, it is my birthday week, and as a person who advocates for rest and recharging, I am taking the week off. Monday and Tuesday was live, Wednesday through Friday pre-recorded, but in true Scorpio form, I wanted to make sure to deliver you the content that all of you deserve. So today, getting into a conversation with author of the book, The Trouble with White Women, Kyla Schuller. Kyla Schuller um, is a Rutgers University professor and has done a history right? Almost um, a recounting of how we have arrived at this place where, as she will tell us in the interview that Pew Research showed over the summer, that, get this folks, 40% of women who identify as feminists vote Republican. 40%, four, zero. And when Kyla utters this to me, I am absolutely shocked because I'm saying to myself, how is it that you one could call, a white woman could call themselves a feminist and then vote for a party that elected a man that was giddy about grabbing women by the pussy, that has over 20 sexual assault and harassment cases pending against him and accusations, um is a known womanizer, articulated that himself. The Republican Party pre-Donald Trump wasn't much better. They vote against the ability of a woman to have autonomy or a person with a uterus to have autonomy over their own body. They will not vote for an Equal Pay Act that would have all women, regardless of race, sexual orientation, gender identity, to be able to be paid on par with her male counterparts, they vote against that. Many of them voted against the Violence Against Women Act, right? And so how, 
how could this 2020 report from Pew Research showcase that 40% of white women who deem themselves to be feminists vote against their own interests? I mean, we have this conversation every week with regard to dying of whiteness with our friend Jonathan Metzl. And it is so dumbfounding to those of us that exist outside of these communities to say, how can both of these things be true at the same time? And in my humble opinion, they fucking can't because you can't on one hand say that you're a feminist, right? Which is the articulation of the equity of people, regardless of gender, right? And yet at that same time, vote alongside party lines for a party that doesn't see you as equal. But this is where we are. And what Kyla's book, The The Trouble with White Women, gets to the heart of the heart is that this is nothing new. Where we found ourselves in 2016, right, with this startling statistics of 50%, over 50% of white women voting against another white woman, Hillary Clinton, in favor of a pussy-grabbing Republican male candidate. Then that number, after watching Donald Trump rip children away from breastfeeding mothers, putting children in cages, right, using the most horrific and offensive language in which to discuss his political adversaries, that he would gain ground with white women, not lose it. And the thing is why I think that it's important to have this conversation with Kyla, who is herself a white woman, is because I am tired as a black queer woman trying to get white communities to come together to recognize how they have been brainwashed how, the, how their history has purposefully been whitewashed as a means to keep them ignorant and beholden to the white supremacist structure. And what is so troubling to me is that even now, following the election in Virginia, where once again, white women showed their full and entire ass in voting for Youngkin, right? A man that wants to ban a Pulitzer Prize winning author, Toni Morrison, a black woman, from being taught in schools because of the fragile emotions and feelings that he believes that white children have around their own identity, which frankly hasn't even been discussed as an identity at all. And so what Kyla articulates in our interview and in her book is that This goes all the way back, folks, to slavery. This goes back hundreds of years. And I've said this before on Woke AF, and I say it everywhere that I have a mic in front of my face. White women get their power, glean their power from white men. White men vote overwhelmingly Republican, regardless of education, regardless, right, of of economic status. So that being said then of course you're going to continue to align yourself with white men if that is where you find your security, right? But at the same time, I am not one to let white women off the hook and say like that is totally acceptable, being as how 
We also know about the weaponizing of tears. We also know that there are plenty of black men and black people that have been lynched, murdered, beaten, and raped over the false accusations uttered from the lips of white women. Right? And so we also know that we spend a particular amount of time in history discussing the slave master, but we don't ever discuss the slave mistress. The white woman that was just as vile, just as cruel, just as vicious, but was just in a dress, standing by and watching atrocities be done in her name and in her honor, right? And doing so on her own front, right? So to me, this is a community that needs to be unpacked, that we need to be interrogating and asking questions as to why. Right? I don't think it is a why in the belief that I feel like we're going to suede, you know, move white women to a different place, because honestly, I don't think that that is the truth. I think that what we are seeing right now in our society is a complete and total doubling and tripling down of white supremacy. And what we know to be true is that when you look back at these movements from suffragists to third wave feminism, right? You're looking at the denial of any other representation of any other identities in choice of only putting forward the woman's agenda, namely making white women the neutral palette for which we fight for women's rights. And that is just bullshit. Because for me, as a black queer woman, I don't get to part and parcel out which sides of me society chooses to deem bad or good. It's just how the fuck I show up. But what's fascinating is what we are seeing, right? Whether it be from the Karens, right? The calling of the police, believing that every police person is basically your own security force. When you feel unsafe and want to shriek and perform fear, right? That you know that the cavalry will come marching in. And there are no penalties for that. There's no accountability for that. We saw it with Amy Cooper, right? She may have lost her job, but then she's suing her employer, saying that she was wrongfully terminated. Well, they decided they don't want to work with a racist. But it's this idea. It's, you know, the conjuring of the McCluskeys, if you remember, That couple, the white couple in front of their mansions, brandishing their weapons, right? That is the image that comes to mind of the stand by your white man, white woman. And if we don't interrogate the truth, right, and get to the heart of the matter, then we're never moving anywhere. And I think that the point and the purpose of this book is to, one, examine our history, right, from slavery to suffragists to Jim Crow to civil rights and then onward to where we find ourselves right now. The problem that we have in our society is that there is a deep desire and force at play that doesn't want critical thinking to be a thing, that wants people to remain asleep, right? There's a war on wokeness that we've been talking about on this show and on others. And what did they say? Oh, there's this woke culture, this cancel culture. Well, what is the opposite of being woke? It's to be asleep. 
So instead of us going back and forth on this intellectually dishonest volleying that we're doing about woke culture, we may want to ask the question as to why Republicans, why white supremacists want Americans to remain asleep, particularly white Americans to remain asleep unconscious to how the systems of white supremacy and patriarchy were built for their favor. Because you see, when you begin to think critically, when you start to ask questions, then you understand your power to be able to shift things. Because the beginning of change comes with the questioning, comes with the asking of why and the justification thereof. But if you formulate your life living right behind a veil, you know, rose colored glasses, hiding behind things like patriotism and freedom and liberation, which are just catchphrases with no foundation in what it means to truly be free in this country, if you find yourself articulating feminist values, but then being completely disconnected from the idea of intersectionality, then you're not doing the work, right? And that's the reality. And so I think that you all will enjoy this conversation with Kyla Schuler, And I encourage everyone to pick up her book, The Trouble with White Women, because I want, I will be having this conversation and not just a conversation out of anger, although anger is productive, right? When it's formulated and targeted towards change. But the reality is, is that there is a lot of work to do, and it's not going to be on my back that this work is going to be done. It is going to be in the communities of white women who are woke and conscious to be able to carry the water to splash on their sisters' faces and wake them the fuck up. Coming up next is my conversation with the author of The Trouble with White Women, Kyla Schuler. Folks, I am so excited to welcome to Woke AF for the very first time, um, Kyla Schuler, who is the author of the book, The Trouble with White Women. And I think that this book, <laughs> love it, love it. I think that this book is so incredibly timely, um, Kyla, in so many ways, because Look, every single time that we have an election, every single time that we want to talk about particular populations, we will talk about every other group. We will talk about white women. We will talk about Latinx women. Uh, we will talk about Asian Pacific Islander women. We will talk about everyone, but we never talk about white women. It is like the third rail, not only in our politics, but in our society as well. Um, and I, and I say that as somebody who started their professional career, believing that they were going to work for a storied women's organization. My first internship in college was at the National Organization for Women, which I'll tell you more about later uh, and how that ended. Um, but it, it wasn't great. So tell, tell me about why this book is so important, particularly now. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, the one of the key political tropes of our supposed universal voter that strategists would go after, which you would know much better than I, you know, which was, was the soccer mom mm -hmm. forever. But for so long, that soccer mom was totally deracinated. 
right? Like, of course, by, by soccer mom, we often mean suburban, suburban white women, but it just got stripped instead as if she's the female universal, right? No race, <laughs> no class, just the soccer mom. And that did start to shift after 2016, right? With, um, with you know, famously almost 50% of white women voting for Trump and then also voting for Roy Moore um, in the election. And then in the second Trump election, you know, um, he got a slightly higher percentage of white women voters. Um, and, you know, so then we did start to talk about white women. Um, but I found in doing this research that even when we are repeating to ourselves, how can it be that 50% of white women are voting for candidates who run on white supremacist anti-woman platforms? But the problem is even more confounding than that. And that is that recent research last summer has shown that 42% of people who identify as feminists vote Republican. Wait, say, wait, say, so say, that, actually, say that statistic one more time. A Pew, research poll, a Pew Research poll in August of 2020 found that 42% of women who identify as feminists vote Republican. Mm-mm-mm. And again, this is not... Republicanism has always been, you know, a conservative um, party that did not support racial and civil rights. That said, it has not weaponized itself against them for a while to the degree that the Trump administration has. And yet in this moment, what we actually have is an issue of not just white women supporting racist candidates. We have a thriving feminism that understands itself to be compatible with the worst forms of capitalism and white supremacy. And so when I did the research and wrote The Troubled White Women, that's actually what I'm writing about. Like, How is it that in our current moment, Ivanka Trump claims that her father is a feminist? <laughs> How is it that researchers have shown that white supremacist groups like Stormfront Online actually have thriving discussions about feminist topics? How do we have feminist white supremacy? <laughs> and that I wrote this book to look backwards and find out how did we get here? Is this a new rupture in the Trump era or not? And what I found is that we were always going to mm. end up here, unfortunately. There is a very long history from the very beginning of feminism uh, led by white women that understood itself to be compatible with racism, capitalism, and empire that focused only on the goals of privileged Mm -hmm. white women and securing their rights and liberties and opportunities and actually leaned into other existing structural inequalities in order to bolster their own position. Yeah. I mean, you know, when we go back uh, to the beginning of just the suffragists, right? Like, like, let's just start at that point. We won't even go all the way back to slavery and talk about, um, you know, we always want to talk about the white slave master, but we never want to talk about the the, the white slave mistress, right? Um, the white woman that stood exactly behind, next to uh, the 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 slave master and participated in uh, and condoned the violence, the cruelty um, that was bestowed upon enslaved Africans. But starting with the suffragist movement, you know, I, I find so many ties between that and how I got involved in the LGBTQ plus movement, um, you know, a a century or so later, where you're always told 
if you are a person that exists at the intersection of multiple identities, that you need to leave parts of those identities behind if they are not in service of what those that are in charge of said movement believe is going to be um, part of what they believe progress looks like. And so during this time, you have very racist, um, and I and I want you to talk about that, very racist uh, white women that were leading the suffragist movement um, who, when pointedly asked by Black women, right, in, in particular, that we need to be more inclusive and encompassing were literally written out of that history. <laughs> yes. And when they were written in, were written in incorrectly, like in the case of Sojourner Truth, which I'll mention in a minute. Um, so, you know, the, um, by, by the very beginning of what we consider the dawn of women's rights in the U.S., which is the famous 1848 Seneca mm -hmm. Falls Convention, led by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and a number of others, she staked her position in that speech as, I am a daughter of a Mayflower immigrant. I am a daughter of a Revolutionary War hero, and yet I am denied the full rights and privileges. And you know, famously, at that convention, she first proposed that women should have the right to vote. And the only person who supported her publicly and immediately <laughs> upon saying that was Frederick Douglass, who was also the only man and the only black person in attendance out of several hundred. But he understood himself to be a partner of the project of fighting for rights in the, in the area of sex mm -hmm. and of race. Mm -hmm. And they did work together for a number of years. And Stanton and Susan B. Anthony were active abolitionists. But after the Civil War, when the 15th Amendment gave the right to vote to black men and men of color for the first time, and also introduced the word male into the constitution for the first time, but did not give the right to vote to any women, then Anthony and Stanton really went on the attack. <laughs> Susan B. Anthony would say things like, I'll cut off my right hand before I support rights for black men yep. over women. Elizabeth Cady Stanton would give long speeches about how the, the morally pure wives like her were being denied rights, but illiterate, ditch diggers, and she would use mm -hmm. racial slurs, and anti-immigrant slurs for Chinese people and Irish people, but especially slurs against the formerly enslaved. She said, you are letting, letting the most degraded elements of society vote before you let your upright wives vote. And they even partnered with a notorious white supremacist in the West. Um, and so, and then at that point, Frederick Douglass broke off from them and formed a different organization with a mixture of black and white allies to fight for voting rights for all. But they really weaponized the case for women for women's rights as an issue of the rights of men of color and formerly enslaved men especially versus white women. And that's one reason that in this book, mm -hmm. a key argument I make is that in this process of studying the 180 year history of feminism and being really excited about the popularity of the term white feminism now and how it helps us identify something we hadn't seen so clearly before. But I also wanted to find out well, what does that term mean exactly? 
And what I found is that our most common definition of white feminism as a feminism that ignores mm-hmm. the the um, the conditions, the rights, the liberties of women of color actually doesn't go far enough. The trouble with white feminism is not that it ignores women of color and the more marginalized. The trouble with white feminism is that it actually exploits the more marginalized as a way to bolster the position of white women. It's not a sin of omission. The trouble with white feminism is actually an act of dispossession. Mm. To give you an example, you know, the, the figure that I, so each chapter of this book, I give you a main woman we would often know from history, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton or Margaret Sanger or in the contemporary moment, Sheryl Sandberg. And, but show that at her time, at her moment, she was in struggle with a different kind of feminism and a different key figure who has been more erased from history. And I focus in particular on the suffrage era on Frances E.W. Harper, who was the best-selling Black poet of the 19th century, and yet is, is often forgotten outside of college classrooms today. And who we hear about is Sojourner Truth. And Sojourner Truth was an incredible activist. <laughs> but what we know about her is that she said at one of these conventions, ain't mm-hmm. I woman, right? But the Black feminist historian, Nell Irvin Painter, showed us 20 years ago that Sojourner Truth never said ain't I woman. She wasn't from the South. She was from upstate New York. Her first language was Dutch. She learned English at age nine and prided herself in her impeccable English. There is a transcription of her speech published in a black newspaper two weeks after. And the first line is something like, can I have a moment here? I'd like to speak for a moment here. 15 years later, Stanton and Anthony published a history of women's rights. And they tapped a white woman ally to write up Sojourner Truth's speech. And that speech is anti-woman and is entirely in dialect. That's completely made up 15 years later by a white woman to create this kind of plantation figure. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, 160 years later, we still think that we are correcting history by giving the caricature version. Um, But Black newspapers and Black feminists have been correcting us on that for since the 1850s. I mean, it's just, it's it's just, you know, what is so utterly disturbing to me, you know, at the top, you mentioned, you know, the, the weaponization, right. Of, of, you know, other people's struggles, right. As in order to advance, uh, for white women as in, in order to advance their own. And what is so disturbing and disgusting is that it persists. And it is so incredibly obvious, right? You know, and I, what I have said on, on, on Woke AF and so many other shows is that white women find their power in proximity to white male patriarchy, right? And that is, that is where they find their power. That is where they find their influence and always have, right? Um, and I will go back, you know, to to the plantations and the slave masters and what have you, that, you know, there is a reason why there is no incredible pushback right now with regard to the anti-abortion laws that are happening across the country, because white women will always have access to an abortion, 
right? Because they have the means and they have the ear and the attention of white men who have always been looked at as their caretakers in order to make sure that those things happen. It is everyone else who is low income, who is a person of color, um, that is left out in the cold. My question for you is, you know, in studying this and understanding that to be true and recognizing that we were always going to arrive at this point in our, in, in our, in our current day, like, was there, there, there was no way to deter, you know, to, to throw, to throw this off course. And if, even if we're all recognizing this truth now in our own ways, how are we, how are we shifting that narrative or can it not be shifted? Yeah, that's a great question. And one reason I, I did go with this provocative title, The Trouble with White Women, is that I also see it to encompass the trouble that white women face. And that trouble that white women themselves face is exactly what you mentioned of there's always this carrot dangling there, especially for middle class and wealthier women, that they could that of the lure of to have the privileges that their brothers and or husbands and or boyfriends or family family members have. Right. There's that lure of you could join the rest of the top of the power hierarchy if you just can get past mm-hmm. that that hindrance of sex. Which of course, traditionally into this day, that hindrance of sex is still enormous. <laughs> I don't mean to discount the structural inequalities of sex. Um, but I would also point out that the people who gave us the political language to understand the structural inequalities of sex are people like Polly Murray, right? Kimberly Crenshaw, <laughs> Patricia Hill Collins, the black feminists who said we can understand sex as a structural inequality because we also understand race and class as structural inequalities. And here's a framework for understanding them. So for now, for you know, like like you mentioned, you've worked with now, there is a moment that things could have gone mm-hmm. differently. You know, now was formed in the 1960s in the wake of the resurgence of women's rights, which traditionally it's credited to the publication of Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique in 1963. But there was another key kickoff in 1963, and that was the March on Washington and how much the male leadership of March on Washington relegated the women involved to the sidelines didn't let them speak on the march platform, made women like Rosa Parks march with their wives instead of with the civil rights leaders. And women involved in leadership team like Polly Murray fought them for months and then gave many speeches afterwards saying, we have to recognize that what we're feeling and this anger for how we were treated by our by the men in the civil rights movement, but this is not just an emotional issue, it's a political issue. And Polly Murray gave a really, really rousing speech about the, the sexism in the March in Washington that Betty Friedan read about in the newspaper. And she called her up the next morning and said, let's talk. Let's start an organization for women. And the National Organization for Women was born a few months later um, at, a, at a major conference. And Polly Murray was on the board. So were a number of other women of color leaders. But within a year, Polly Murray dropped out because she said this platform is only going to focus on the needs of yep. class white women. It wasn't turning out to be an anti-racist organization. It wasn't turning out to be organizations supporting workers and labor. And she said, I can't be pulled into three directions, a black person here, a woman here, and a worker here. 
and she dropped out and um and now has had a lot of difficulty being anything but a middle-class white women's organization since and i and i would and i would argue i would just add to that also a incredibly cisgender and straight uh white woman middle class you know organization because you know at the beginning of you know the <laughs> the turn of the uh the decade of the 2000s i found myself at the national organization for women because it was a storied organization i always wanted to work uh for a women's rights organization and as a young black queer woman that was getting ready to graduate from college i found myself there on an internship with a myriad of you know young women of color from all across the country queer and straight and, you know, after several months realizing that, you know, I was, I was invisible, right? Like they they, the issues and the intersectionality that we speak of today, right? Was, was, was purposefully, I, I don't even want to say that it was lost. It was purposefully ignored because if you were going to be in, th- in that organization at that time, then you needed to be a woman and a woman only. And that meant to neutralize any other forms of your identity. Yeah. Yeah, that is really powerful, right? And Betty Fran famously ki- tried to kick all the lesbians out of now in 1969 to 1970. And there was a lot of pushback. But what you're saying is those legacies like don't go away. <laughs> the organization never really truly tried to correct itself. There was an important woman of mm-hmm. color who led the organization in the early 1970s. Um, but then, but that really kind of got erased. And I found that his historian has found that now has not ever even done a demographic survey of its membership since 1970. No. And if Are they you have, serious? If they have, if they have, it's not released publicly. I think because what it yields is not going to be good for them. <laughs> so they just haven't made the data available. Um, but I think, yes, like there, there certainly are other, other, um, other op- opportunities. I think that what we're seeing in the outcry against white feminism across the world right now um, is is hugely important in helping people understand that just because something is feminist doesn't mean it's necessarily progressive and doesn't mean it's against structural inequality. I think that intersectional feminism, you know, which reframes the, the goal, instead of being, we want equality between the sexes, Intersectional feminism says we need to broadly redistribute mm-hmm. resources so that we have equality for the mm-hmm. many, not for the few. And that means racial justice, economic justice, yep. queer and trans justice, climate justice, it, you know, disability justice it is a huge umbrella category. And you know, the leaders of of those theories, like. Kimberly Crenshaw again, Patricia Hill Collins, and then Polly, you know, even Polly Murray. I've been also very clear that that is only achieved by people working in coalition. That we have to reach across our differences um, in order to vote on a common political platform to build a movement strong enough to actually go after systemic inequality on all, all those levels. I think that that is happening in some levels. I mean, I think that I think that the leadership of Black Lives Matter have been absolute models of that for years, of what a Black queer anti-violence organization can can look like. That's you know against structural um, violence and police brutality. I think a lot of the Me Too movement has actually been very successful. You know, especially especially work that Toronto Burke does, but working across groups and all also internationally. 
I'm getting a lot of interest in this book from Japan and Korea, for example, because Me Too has caused and stimulated major feminist awakenings. Um, and I think that is really exciting to see a movement like that have, have such legs. Um, and then, you know, the work of, of, of activists in, in Congress even, right? Of the, the squad mm-hmm. and the expanded squad with Cori Bush and many others are showing us what it can look like to actually fight for equality on multiple fronts at once. Not just choosing one thing. You know, I think that it's so, you know, it, it's funny. I, I want to say that I sadly just recently learned of Pauli Murray and mm-hmm. was so angry at the fact that I didn't know, I didn't know who she was. It wasn't until literally uh, two months ago that I was asked to uh, moderate a panel uh, for the document, the docu, the documentary uh, yeah. that is out now on Amazon Prime, and I met with the, I you know interviewed the director, one of the directors uh, of the film, and you know and and she and she talked about the fact like this is why we wanted to do this, you know she was instrumental in so many different in so many different avenues. I mean when when you understand the story of a person that was advocating well before advocating, you know, for, for, for desegregation. Yeah. I mean, for, yeah, you know, well before Rosa Parks even got on a bus, you know what I'm saying? And like, you know, trying cases that would, and, and setting up the framework for what we would use for Brown versus the board of education, uh, and title nine. Um, and it, it's just, it's astonishing to me that you can have these towering figures who for not for their existence, we wouldn't even be here, right? In so many different forms or fashion that are utterly and completely whitewashed and erased from history. And, you know, and I think that it's so, the work that you're doing and the studying that you're doing is so important because when you think about what it means to purposefully mischaracterize Sojourner Truth, to make her into a figure that was this uneducated mammy, right? That they could then use, you know, to justify why they needed their rights and why they were superior. And like the the desire to degrade in order to, you know, in, in order to progress to me seems to be white women's like, you know, mode of entree. And I just don't understand, I don't understand it. You know, and I, I ask you, you know, the last question I have for you, like as a, as a white woman doing this work, right? Like what kind of pushback do you receive, right? Like what kind of conversations do you, have you had and do you get into with this type of provocative research and discussion? Because again, from the beginning, this community, white women is the third rail in our society and politics. We don't ever discuss unless we're empathizing or or lifting up. Yeah. And you know, I'll admit that I first heard of Polly Murray about eight years ago, and I was already a professor of gender studies at Rutgers University. And I heard of Polly Murray because my new colleague, Brittany Cooper, gave a talk about Polly Murray and my eyes were opened. And I want to emphasize that that is part of my my uh, role and perspective in coming to this work is that these counter histories I'm telling of the black, trans, indigenous, and Latina women who are who are fighting against white feminism, 
were less ignored than deliberately mm -hmm. erased, right? Um, but not not forgotten for everyone and not forgotten by everyone. The work of Black feminist historians in particular since the 1980s, like Angela mm -hmm. Davis, and Paula Giddings, and many others, has been to recover these histories and bring them back into the public eye. Um, and that work is certainly out there. I'm not making any major discoveries in terms of the counter history. Uh, what I'm trying to do, and in part this is in my role as a white woman, is to provide, a, to synthesize this work and combine it with my much more original critique of white feminism um, and to provide another avenue for people to encounter these, these other histories um, and to, you know, to, um, to, to build on and pull together the, the all this important work that's been done for decades. So for you know, for mm -hmm. example, uh, the, the one of the most outrageous details that I found is about Pauline Murray. And this is in the in the 1955 and 1956. At that point she had done all the things you mentioned, right? Created the legal rationale for Brown versus Board, but her male supervisors had never even told her that, that was the case. <laughs> she was uh, had invented the the mm -hmm. sit-in. Um, she had written a, a book, a law textbook of civil rights law that Thurgood Marshall called mm -hmm. the Bible. She had become the first African-American to get a residency at the McDowell Artist Colony. And she was a regular visitor at Eleanor Roosevelt's upstate Hudson River yeah, retreat. Because they made they became yeah. friends after she wrote a scathing <laughs> letter in the paper about her husband. <laughs> yeah, right. And because right, exactly. Um, they were friends for for a decade at that point. And yet what Polly Murray was doing for a living was typing. Mm. She couldn't get full time work as a lawyer. She also had a master's in law from Berkeley and had graduated top of her class at Howard. She was typing and she was typing anonymously for the work of other writers. And one of her main clients was Betty Friedan. And so in that chapter, I counterpoise Betty Friedan's story with Polly Murray's story. And we are quite literally, one person got erased through the, but another person got elevated to the role of the key feminist of that time. In terms of pushback, I mean, definitely some white women don't like the title, mm -hmm. <laughs> The Trouble with White Women, right? I mean, I definitely may, may be accused of being a racist, um, you know, that, or that, uh, you know, racist against, against mm -hmm. white people, um, you know, and that kind of like race traitor logic. Um, but really, I, wanna, I want to emphasize that I think that one, I, you know, that it's important for white women to be talking yep. to other white women about this work. I also think we are past the point for that conversation to be fully mm -hmm. insular and where we're only talking about whiteness, <laughs> that we need to be also listening and learning about other forms of feminism and from especially from intersectional feminism, which is absolutely showing us the way to what equality on all fronts looks like. Um, but I really understand myself to be a student of intersectional feminism and helping to, to listen to that work and again, to provide a new road to reach it, not to claim any kind of ownership or discovery because black women have been doing this work since the 1860s. I mean, Kyla, I, I just, you know, I am so appreciative, one, that you are doing this work, that as a white woman, you did write this book and that you are researching um, and presenting, you know, centuries 
of evidence, right? Of how, you know, because I, I, I don't want to have, I don't want to be stuck in the conversations of how did we get here? I want to finally get to a place. And, you know, and, and again, because we have so many purposeful wrongs in our history, we have to do both end at the same time and question how we got here yeah. and then how we, where we are headed next. Like we just don't have the luxury to be able to do one and then the other, not at, not at this, at, at this critical stage. Um, I, I just, I, I, again, folks, the book is the trouble with white women. Kyla Schuler, I really hope that you will come back to Woke AF and continue this conversation. I know that it's going to sp uh, spark commentary uh, among the Woke AF audience. So I, I hope that you'll join us again soon. Oh, I would love to. Thank you so much. Thank Daniel. you. Take care. Bye. That is it for me today, folks, on Woke AF. As always, power to the people and to all the people power. Get woke and stay woke as fuck. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.